0: To the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis, and this is the podcast where coaches come to talk about coaching. And I am excited today. I've gone down the young coaching path again. We have got an Australian PGA professional from Western Australia, Carrot Gray, He's coming in to have a chat to me. Thanks for coming in, Carrot.
1: Thanks, Brent. Really, ex- uh, really excited to be here and talk and. I'm going to milk that young coach role for as much as I can, I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I say young, but I'm thinking probably recent graduate as opposed to purely young. But, um, I've, um, I've had fun. a couple, you know, that's all good. I've had a couple of you guys on recently. So um, I'm keen to to hear what you do and how you go about it. Cause I think you're the guys that are going to be changing the way coaching's is done. Um, and I'm keen to hear about your, your stories and, how you're putting those skills into practice. So for those that don't know you out there, tell me a bit about yourself.
1: Oh, so quick elevator sort of roll through. I um, grew up in a small town called Margaret River. My dad was a semi-pro surfer, let's say. So sporting was always in the family blood. Um, Surfing itself never really turned into a career for him, but we always had an interest, uh, both me and my sister, in sport. And so therefore, whenever we took... A, a little bit more um, interest in one sport or another he definitely pushed us that that down that route and as soon as I started playing golf we lifted the the back of the golf course in Margaret River I used to go down and steal balls out of the lake and hit them around my my block my country block that I've got there um, pretty much directed me going down that path and I couldn't thank him enough for that so it's all it's been a hell of a ride since then and I played junior golf and amateur golf throughout WA um, I made an Australian junior team that went to China with a couple of professionals that are still out there. Brady Watts, one of them now, he was the world number one amateur quite a few years ago. Uh, And then turned pro when I was 19 or did my traineeship at the Netherlands golf club for three years. I then uh, tried is the operative word to play on tour for about three, (laughs) three years. And then I transitioned out of that into a head bro and now coaching full time.
0: Yeah, it sounds sounds really cool. Just something that that caught me because I grew up in the country as well. So I grew up in the country and I grew up on the golf course. So you 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 spoke about stealing golf balls and um and playing golf on the golf course. The our course that I grew up on didn't have a practice fairway as such. We had a driving range, which I couldn't afford to buy golf balls at the time. So we grew up playing golf. So how did that impact your your golfing? Journey, so to speak. Did you find that you play on the golf course as a kid more because you grew up in the country as opposed to what you could have done in the city?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think two things uh, were massive influences. Number one, it was the there was a husband and wife that owned the golf shop down there, and they weren't golf professionals; they were simply just caretakers. And um, it was a little shop there, and they made their living selling logo shirts, Margaret River region, going hand in hand with the wine. It's beautiful golf course itself. And he was just a golfing fanatic and loved everything about it. He probably played off about a three or four handicap, a, uh, three or four handicap, but he just loved the game. And therefore, for me going from the ages of eight until I left Margaret River when I was 16, he was always challenging me for chipping competitions and putting competitions, and they would just turn into ridiculous. We used to call it army golf, right? So we would go out into the golf course, we'd tee off the first hole, but then we've got to play to like the sixth green. And it might take us seven or eight shots to get there hitting over trees. And in the afternoon, you know what it's like at country courses, there's hardly one out there. Um, Blue collar workers will go out and play a couple of holes with a few beers and that sort of thing. But as a a junior growing up, I really think it, it helped massively, number one, for course access. So you just you're just building that that muscle, that soft skill muscle of being able to learn how to play and be creative out on the golf course from a very young age. From a very young age. And I think a lot of players that maybe grow up in metro areas or significantly more populous than Australian cities, so let's say in New York or something like that, would be confined to a driving range itself. So they don't really develop that muscle until they go out and play. But it's certainly something from a young age that I think has played a massive role. And Definitely now moving into coaching, um, the empathy I can have for players and students and also with the way that I see the, the younger golfers that I teach practice, from a reference experience I can see straight off the bat what effective and ineffective practice is. So just from personal experience, so without a doubt answering your question, yeah, that is so important.
0: Yeah, it's um. I've, I probably came across the heaps when I was coaching in Taiwan and China as well. Is the kids don't get access to the golf course because it's mm. expensive and they have to pay to access it. So yeah. they again they stand on the driving range and hit off perfect flat lies with the same club over and over again and get good at that shot. But then they get on the golf course and Absolutely. struggle to actually perform that skill in that competitive situation. So I think we're we're fortunate in Australia that even in the cities. Um, we still get access to golf courses which is great yeah 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 totally agree so tell me about your playing career because i'm always curious about what coaches bring across from playing because so it's, it's an area of interest that i've got personally about how much of an impact playing ability actually has on on coaching so mm. tell me you played overseas for a while didn't you? you went to asia and tried over there
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Went to tour school in Asia once, and then did the South Pacific and a bit of the Aussie tour and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, two things I would two things I would add to that. Um, I think the ability to play relative to what sort of coaching you're delivering um, is important, albeit not important. Um, because I think if you're dealing with the, the player development side of things for juniors trying to develop into amateurs and professionals, at least you've been through that process. So you can be empathetic through various stages of what they're doing. Secondary, I think when it comes to demonstrating, it's incredibly important, um, be it with the teenagers that think you're some old washed up pro that can't hit a golf ball and you show them up. Um even though you might only play one round a year, or be it with the professionals when you're trying to demonstrate something, or just, just a recreational golfer. Being able to demonstrate on demand and actually um, walk the talk as such I think is an incredibly powerful skill. It's very similar to when you would go into a gym and you would see uh, if you look at the, the majority of PTs that maybe have a very successful business, the majority of them would be very fit themselves. That's generally how it goes. I know there's certain elements to strength and conditioning coaches where that's not really appropriate, but let's talk about just general gym. That would be a pretty good reference. So when it comes through golf coaching, a lot of what I would do is also like to demonstrate um, players learn in a multitude of different ways, but being able to, to show them exactly what you're trying to achieve. And then from a uh, marketing and sales point of view,
0: from the coaching side, uh, from the business side of coaching, it's incredibly important as well now when you spoke about fit personal trainers don't look so hard down the camera at me when you say those kind of things so that was very rude of you mr gray it was me trying to keep myself accountable
1: so in like 10 10 years time that i've said that i've got to reflect
0: yeah that's it um so so what of your playing did you bring to your coaching so obviously you, you played at a fairly decent standard so what 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 parts of the coaching that you got when you were in those Australian squads and in those junior squads Mm. Mm. uh, did you bring across to your own coaching when you started coaching? So I didn't really get coaching growing up. Um, I would get the
1: occasional lesson from maybe about 15 to 18, I think it was. Yeah, they were very sporadic. There was no structure. Because I lived in the country, it was always uh, every – I don't know, 10 weeks or so, I'd go up and I'd get a lesson and that sort of thing. And my coach that I had, uh, he was a brilliant people's coach, let's say, uh, technically wires some old school concepts there, which in hindsight, weren't as beneficial relative to what I needed or probably needed at that point in time um, for my misses and As with anything, the understanding and golf coaching itself has developed so much in the last 15 years. You can't hold that against any coach. They're just doing the best with what they had. Um, But he was incredibly good at, very similar to the caretaker at the golf course in Margaret River, at um, encouraging me to be as creative with my practice and play and not spend any time on the range and always challenge myself and a lot of progression, regression. So what I've probably bought into my coaching more than anything is with the specific players that I teach is, is a large uh, holistic viewpoint of becoming a good golfer is so much more than just being able to hit a golf ball a little bit better. Um, I would definitely say that without a doubt, it's probably the
0: most important thing I've brought in. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably tend to be on the same page as I think. We focus very heavily as golf coaches on the technique of golf swing um, mm. as opposed to playing golf. So I think um, you're certainly on a, on a on a good track there. So tell me about the, the, the step into coaching. So you've gone and played. People like myself, you found out pretty quickly that you weren't good enough, um, yeah. which is, is yeah, obviously a big blow to the ego because I was the same way. Um, and you've gone down that coaching path. So tell me about the first experiences of coaching.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll kind of set the scene. I, my, one of my last events was in Papua New Guinea. And we went up there for those two events, and they're worth a fair bit of money, so a whole bunch of pros go up. And it was a really long two weeks, and I got um, stopped by some shady, drunk army officers on the way back, and they took a couple hundred dollars off me before I jumped on the plane. Otherwise, I was going to go back to the, the local jail. So wow. that was um, – <laughs> That was enough to kind of motivate me to kind of reevaluate where I was. At that point in time, I was just making ends meet. And I was doing a lot of um, casual jobs in between tournaments. So I was doing landscaping, laboring for plasterers. I was doing some work for a stockbroker here and there. So whenever I was back, I was just trying to fill my time to make a little bit of money to get to the next event. And professional golfing itself is a very selfish pursuit. You have to be very... um, one-dimensional about what you're trying to do. You, sure, you have a team around you, but you have to make incredible sacrifice uh, personally to do that. And I think relative to, to my personality, I wasn't quite gelling with that as much as I thought I would. And then also, I think a lot of the practice habits that I developed when I was younger, even though they were good to get me to a certain level, I don't think I actually had the the sheer determination to do what it took to get to the highest level not relative to now being in the coaching sphere for as long as I have, to what I've seen the, the kids and the amateurs who have developed into elite players, how intense they were with the, that practice. I was definitely more creative and fun with what I was doing, uh, not as not as focused, I would say. Um, so then I got to a point and I was not jaded. I was just a little bit disheartened for the fact that my whole ego was associated with playing golf and then it would come to, pretty much an end now when i did my traineeship i don't really like to do things half-assed so i I put as much effort into making sure i did my assignments as well as i could and making sure that i was completely committed to to getting the highest marks as i could and that paid off because at the end of my traineeship i finished number one in australia for the academic side of things and that was a huge sense of um pride for me and So, therefore, when I was phasing out of playing, I was looking at my potential options going forward. And I dabbled in doing a little bit of uni while I was before I did my traineeship, and I knew that wasn't really where I wanted to head in. Uh, And golf coaching had always piqued my interest, but never to the point where I considered an actual option. Now, during the time when I was doing these casual jobs, I would have a lot of time. So let's say I was landscaping and my boss would go, you've got this huge big pile steaming uh, mulch over there, go rake that for the next eight hours. So it's pretty mind-numbing stuff. Luckily, you're allowed to listen to music and podcasts and that sort of thing. And during that time, I've always been business-inclined. I just spent a lot of time when podcasts were really first a thing back in 2014, 13, listening to a whole bunch of self and professional development. Podcasts, and there was one podcast specifically called "Golf in the Life of" by Cordy Walker. Um, all the episodes and everything is still out on um, the podcast platforms now, and that really got me thinking about where I could take my career from where it was. Because I've spent all this time in golf, I've got these certifications, I've got the, I've got the knowing the internal satisfaction of knowing that if I set my mind to something within the the golf sphere, I know I can succeed. Thanks to backing off the. Um, recognition for for the academic results that i got so therefore i became obsessed with listening to all these stories of these successful golf coaches and it made me wonder if if i could fast forward 20 30 years uh going forward like what would I want my life to look like and I still wanted to be around golf I absolutely love it um, but the business side of it really sucked to pique my interest And in all these podcasts that I was listening to I'd be able to go well I want to do that I want to do that I want to do it and I had all these awesome ideas in my head about what I wanted to do but I had nowhere to teach right so at that point in time I didn't really have any career capital effectively I was a player who had the qualification to teach but I didn't have any notoriety in the local industry um and i found it very i applied for a couple of jobs here in perth and there's not that many full-time teaching pros over here or teaching positions and i i didn't get them i got some casual work at a, a local public golf course here and i remember the first time i started teaching i was trying to do some old school marketing i was like okay i'm gonna put some posters up and i was i did a couple of ads on facebook and gumtree and i pretty much got told to take them down because it wasn't um, the right thing to do by the other pros, right? And to be honest, that kind of paved me off a fair bit, right? So I ended up finishing up at that casual job and I was in a bit of limbo. I was applying for jobs all over the world because I'd been focusing so much on coaching and coaching development. I had these huge ideas of how I wanted to start beginning to implement all my coaching programs and the way I wanted to take my business. But I just had nowhere to teach, and uh, I got down to the last couple for a job in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, one in America. But once again, I was 25. I had no career capital in what I did, and I and I began to realize that this was a big sticking point. So then I started looking outside of the realm of just coaching, and I thought, well, could I do an assistant role or a head professional role? And just as I kind of made that conscious decision. A head professional role came up at a golf course just north of where I grew up, a place called Buffleton. So it's a small country town, maybe, I'm going to get this wrong, but maybe 50,000 people in the town, uh, very blue collar, not really that many serious golfers, but the ad was essentially, they were looking for uh, a head professional who was young, energetic, and um, committed to to trying to grow the golf club as well as themselves in the role. So effectively, they just wanted someone who was going to do a lot of work for not much money. <laughs> but great. I was I put my hand up straight away, right? So I went down there. They interviewed a couple of people. I happened to have a little bit of a leg in there because the GM, he used to be a, a member of the golf club down in Margaret River when I was growing up there. So we had a little bit of rapport built there anyway, but I hadn't seen him for 15 years or something like that. Anyway, um, luckily, got the job and I can't thank him enough because it was probably the most important step in my career I took. It was definitely at the time, it was quite a polarizing feeling, um, mainly because I had to move back in when I were parents. I spent all this time trying to get out of Margaret River and pursue the dream of professional golf and playing the Masters and play all these big events. I moved to Perth. I felt like I was close. I was doing the travel, doing the tour. And then all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was moving back down to Margaret River. So that was another knock to the era. I just stay committed to the trajectory of where I wanted to head. And I was always thinking of that as where do I ultimately want to get? And if this is a stepping stone that is needed on the way, well then just think about that. Okay, Don't think about where you currently are at this point in time, because it's only on the way to eventually where you're going to go. And if you keep doing the right stuff, if you keep working hard, you'll get there. You will get there as long as you don't get too content, too lazy. So therefore I went down, um, lived with my parents for two years. And during this head pro role, I was focused on developing the pro shop, which is what they wanted. But between you and me, I was definitely a lot more focused on the golf coaching. Now, the great thing about that is being in a country town, I could experiment with everything. So everything I'd heard about in these podcasts, I would just throw up. I'd do all different types of variations of clinics and play development programs and individual lessons at different times and different uh, price points. And I'm very analytical by nature, and I love – micro analyzing everything down to a T sort of spreadsheets of different formulas and how much could I make if I did this and how many clients could I get in? And I was optimizing the way I was doing their stats and everything I was putting into the correspondence between them. I was, I was literally just trying to go, if I could run the perfect coaching business, what would it look like? And it was wonderful. It was, it was an awesome time. And during that time I started delving really down into what makes a successful coach uh, become someone who's in demand, in popular, right? And then during these podcast episodes, I listened to a couple and there was a couple of big names that stood out. Um, one of them, Andrew Rice, and another was Jeff Ritter. And during this time down in Bustleton, uh, I would have holidays and that sort of thing to go to, uh, go and shadow coaches or go up to seminars. And there was a specific seminar up in Asia. Uh, Stephen Giuliano, has he, he been on the podcast yet? Yeah. Yes, so, he has, yep. Yeah, so Steve's one of my good friends and mentors, and he was running, this is before I'd met Steve, and he was running the Golf Education Asia Summit in 2016. And I thought, what an opportunity, right? One of these guys that I've been looking up to forever, who epitomizes effectively the coach that I want to become, a guy called Jeff Ritter, he was presenting. So I flew up there, nervous as all hell, just I used to be very introverted, scared of public speaking, couldn't do anything in that nature. I couldn't even ring up and book a table at a restaurant because I was nervous about disrupting what the person was doing right but over this time as well as developing myself as a coach um i really went down the the personal or self-development side of things as well so i got up to bangkok and i saw jeff and i mustered up the courage as nervous as i was sweating and shaking and introduced myself and it was it was one of the most pivotal experiences of my life because he was so much more gracious of giving me time than i thought he would ever be and then He's become a big mentor for me, and he's given me a lot of opportunities down the track, which which I'm sure we can talk about. So that was my first introduction into coaching. Um, coaching itself, during my traineeship, I did a little bit here and there, but really down at Bustleton's where I began to hone my craft.
0: Something that caught my attention there is um, you. And I get where you're coming from when you said there isn't any too many full-time coaching roles where you're from. Um, obviously, mm. it's a big state land-wise, but a small state population-wise over there. So, trying to get you full-time it. coaching roles is a challenge. And myself in the country as well, similar type situation. If I was going to go full-time coaching, I would have had to move to the city. And at that time, that that didn't appeal to me. Um, I was curious that you went overseas first. You went to you've gone to your first thought was to go and try and find a job overseas as opposed to doing the assistant role. Whereas I went the other way. I, I just went part-time shop hours, part-time coaching hours. Why was the shift towards overseas straight away? What was, the, what was the thought process there?
1: Growing up in a small country town, I knew, I'd done a lot of travel with my, my parents, which I'm very grateful for. And I realized the world was a lot bigger than my hometown, my home city, my home state. And, my dad was always pushing me to do something that was outlandish as a young person because that's the only real opportunity you get to do so without, the, um, without a family and kids and the responsibilities that come with life. And I'm very ambitious by nature, and I thought, well, I'm sure I wouldn't be the first young person to try and get a job overseas and go ahead and do it. And I remember speaking to I think, Derek Hooper, who works over in Texas. Do you know Derek? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I used to just message all these different coaches on Facebook, right? <laughs> I must have gone, oh, my God, Karen's messaging me again. But I was just <laughs> trying to see if, where they got and how they got. And he, was, he was telling me his story. He was in uh, Queensland and then he went to Japan and then he got a job t- to America from there. So I was listening to all these guys and don't get me wrong, without a doubt, I was like five or six steps ahead of where I should have been thinking. But I think at the same time, it just – It just gave me this this idea of what was possible in coaching. It got me really excited. And when I was going through these interview processes, like I knew that I probably wasn't gonna get the job. But whenever you do something really challenging in life, as difficult as it may be, I think the net result is you're gonna grow as grow grow from doing it. So I knew that if I got knocked back from doing that job, at least I've did the interview well the next interview is going to be a little bit easier I'm going to know the questions to ask and then I kept doing that kept doing that and they were all zoom or audio calls or whatever they were back then um, and I suppose it just honed that muscle and I think about it now is maybe I wouldn't have got the bustleton job if I didn't try and do those job interviews before because my interviewing skills were a little bit better so I think it's the aggregate effect of all these small things which then really compounded put you into a position where you have a skill set which is which is unique uh the reason i didn't go local on top of that was just i had big aspirations i had really big aspirations and i think a lot of that came from the podcast is i realized that the majority of the coaches that i was that were being interviewed were from america so i thought i need to go to america and that's why i was looking externally because i thought that would bring me up to that career capital point um and didn't work out that way but um I'm probably better off for it not working out that way because it made me really groove the muscle in maybe a unique way of going down the head pro role and developing the skill set of management and communication and rapport building with members and understanding how management works with um, the GM there and then being able to utilize the soft skills I learned there in a coaching business now, even though I'm a contractor, still dealing with different personalities and the mixed martial arts of communication, which golf coaching is, you're only going to be better for going through those experiences.
0: I just, yeah, that is is such a, a cool, cool story because I just think as a twenty-something year old trying to look overseas, like that is isn't, isn't something that I would have done myself. I just couldn't see myself doing that. <laughs> I would have been absolutely shit scared, to be brutally honest. So that's um, that's a really cool story. Awesome. Yeah. So talk me through the impact of guys like Jeff. So Jeff Ritter is on my podcast hit list. I'm hopefully getting in touch with him um, this year to get him on on the podcast and come and have a chat to me. So talk me through the impact that he's had on your coaching career.
1: So I would say coaching is a very small part of it, probably more so life, right? Um, I I alluded to before when I was growing up, I was a very shy, nervous, introverted person and – I've certainly developed a lot over the last, since I started to, to really pursue down the coaching route, and that was probably six years. And I would say almost aspects of my personality now are the complete opposite. And a lot of that is because I realized that if I was ever going to make something of myself, especially in this industry, I was looking at the key attributes or the characteristics of these very successful um, coaches of any notoriety, their ability to communicate, build rapport, and be on camera, right? and if you can be on camera that means you can do public speaking you can stand in front of a big crowd of uh, corporates you can do whatever you like effectively but that's a a very challenging muscle and skill to develop and it's something that i think a lot of people shy away from because of the fear of doing it because look you're always going to stuff up but if you're the person that is stuffing up at least you're giving it a shot right (laughs) and um and when I, so the impact that Jeff had on is when I was listening to his golf in the life of interview, his charisma in which he was talking about, and Jeff is not really a, he'll probably hold me against for saying this, but he's not really a technical coach as per se, right? He's a, he's a showman. He's a showman. He's the sort of person where a player will come in. It doesn't matter who this player is. They could be a professional, could be a rank beginner, right? And, he would make them within ten minutes feel like anything is possible. He would get them shifting their ball flight. I remember when I, I went and worked for him in in Pebble Beach, uh, which is part of the story we've talked about. Uh, I asked him, "Do you want me to bring any? Tech? Do you want me to bring my flight scope and that sort of thing?" He's like, "Oh, look, I've got a flight scope. I don't really use it. We can just use this one." And he goes, oh, "I don't think I ever drag it out." And you know what you like as a young coach? You like want the, the latest and greatest technology, and you think that that's going to build you as a coach. And Jeff's just the complete opposite. He just knows the importance of rapport building, communication, and just uplifting the person in front of them. And I've never seen anyone do as good a job as what he has done. And I, I got that sense of his personality when I was listening to him on the podcast. And then throughout that period of time when he was mentoring me, might have only been on uh, Facebook Messenger or Instagram and that sort of thing. Just the mindset he had about coach and life and development, and he does a lot of corporate retreats. He's done some some big ones for Apple and BMW, I think, as well. And he's a holistic coach, but not in the sense of the technical side of things. It's mindset, nutrition, uh, fitness, everything that it is to become a better player, but also a better person. And even though it's very broad, it's also niche in golf that some coach would do that and I saw that as a huge strength, and that was something that I wanted to, to pursue and take my coaching career down as well. So as much as Jeff has influenced my my coaching, uh, he's definitely influenced my life on a far greater level as well.
0: No, that's that's awesome. It's um, I've always found, and I don't know if it's just golf, but all the high-profile coaches, and you said when you, when you first spoke to Jeff at, at Steve's Coaching Summit in Asia, he was very approachable and um. Um, sharing information with you and having a, having a conversation, and I found that through my own career as well. Most of the high profile coaches are are open to having a chat, and if you get in touch with them and ask them some questions, they're quite happy to share their experience, which is which is a, a powerful tool to have.
1: Oh, it's, yeah, it's it's amazing. I can't tell you how many countless conversations I've had over over Facebook, and just the other day I was messaging. Andrew Rice about his latest project with Golf Fanatics, asking how I could jump on that and be a part of that. And just the fact that it's so easily accessible to, to talk to these people who 15 years ago, there would just be some grand idea in your in your head that you think they're, oh, they're una, unobtainable to go and communicate with. And now it's as simple as sending them a message and the amount of help I've got from people. And not only Jeff, but Steve up in Malaysia, the amount of times that he helped me early on is just, yeah i'm indebted to them for a very long time that's for sure
0: (laughs) actually tying them down to schedule a time to to have a chat to them can be a challenge sometimes i mean (laughs) it's almost a year now i've been trying to get andrew on the podcast and he's keen to do it but he just can't can't get on his calendar at the moment and now he's golf school season starting again so it'll be even harder i think to find some time to fit him on
1: well you think about someone like that and the effect he's probably had on hundreds, if not thousands, of coaches. They're all probably wanting his attention. But the fact that he still gets back to to everyone and and acknowledges them and he's he's very um he's just very down to earth. A lot of those top guys that you're talking about, it's really good to see. It's really
0: good to see. Yeah, it is. Um a common common comment I get from coaches, um, especially in Australia, is okay, that's great for all those guys overseas that are doing these U but coaching programs and getting stuff set up out right there and having this high profile you've obviously set up this stuff in australia so talk me through how you've set your coaching up over here and how's it worked for you over here
1: as in the the programming itself
0: yeah just, like how have you set your coaching programs up at the over in perth there now are you, are you doing single golf lessons or are you doing program-based stuff or how have you set it up over here
1: so, as with anything, it's an it's an evolution, and my business is going through a slight restructure at the moment because I want to be open to more opportunities. But uh, when I started down in Boston, I was chopping and changing and trying a lot of things. And when I started at Jindalup Resort, where I am now, which is the number one resort course in Australia, it's this beautiful twenty-seven hole course, massive driving range. The possibilities are endless. Now, historically, golf coaching, in my opinion is very transactional and reactive, right? So someone's got a slice. They want to come and pay you $65 for half an hour to fix that slice, fine, that's great. But within that period of time, you, you can't build any rapport with the client. And my favorite thing about golf coaching and the business of golf coaching is building relationships, without a doubt. So I decided that that was going to be the number one key that I was going to bring into my golf coaching practice That Every single client that came through, it wasn't going to be transactional and reactive in nature. It was going to be progressive. We're going to look at what their their goals, their motivations, their frustrations, their anxieties about what they have with golf. Right. So, for example, that person that comes in and slices it, that might be a small issue, right? Um, because you fix that slice, you get them drawing it and all of a sudden they're hooking it and then they come back and they want to be slicing it and it's just back and forth it's not progressive so i really wanted to always go down the route of player development um and at the beginning when i started at at jindler i was sure i was offering everything under the sun because i just needed to build a business and build a book and but i would make sure that i was giving so much time on above and beyond so it wasn't transactional in the nature of communication. Uh, everyone gets a coach now space, which they can post as many videos as they like every single night. Even now, four years in, I'm still answering messages on coach now, every morning, every night, text messages, everything that goes through it. Thank God I'm single. Um, And making sure that I'm giving my clients as much time as I possibly can. And I think that's been a big key. And that's something that definitely doesn't go unnoticed. And if you go into any other practice, be it PT or even my chiropractor, what makes me keep going back to them is the rapport that I build with them and the trust that I have in them. And I think if you have their best interests in heart, I think that's key. Um, so, in regards to the actual programming of it, uh, I started off with uh, half an hour and hour lessons and a new student assessment. A new student assessment was at a low price point, it was $99. And effectively, it was one hour coaching, but it was more of a sit down, have a discussion, build rapport and get to know the player. I had like a sheet that I would fill in. I'd film their swings, put them on the flight scope, get the data, talk them through sort of where they are. But it was more so about giving them an understanding that I could take them above and beyond where they think they need to go, right? I would show them the potential within their golf game. So I wouldn't just look at their full swing, I'd look at their chipping and putting as well. And I'd also get to know their personality, their job, um, their family situation, because at the same time as I was trying to work out their golf game, I was trying to produce uh, results in a business sense and a monetary sense out of understanding their life situation. So I had the hour lesson, the half hour, and the new student assessment. Very quickly, I got rid of the half hour, and I just had the hour and the new student assessment. The hour was priced a little bit higher because I didn't want people to go towards that, and I needed or I wanted new clients to come in. So very early on in my coaching, it was pretty much just hours upon hours of new student assessments going through the same process over and over and over again. And to be honest, a lot of the comments that I get in that first session, I go, well, I didn't even know I was getting this. And this is so nice because usually they come in and it is very transactional in nature. But to sit down with someone, actually run through them and feel like you're taking your time, even though it's only fitting within the hour, it's easy to make an hour feel long and quick at the same time. So long in terms of you're listening to them. So they feel like they get a lot of off your chest. It's like when you go and speak to a psychologist or something like that, but quick in in the sense that by the hours done, you're like, oh my God, that went so fast. I want to do it again. And that's what you want, right? You've just put someone who was maybe a, a reactive transaction into a long term client because you showed that you cared. So I would put them all into this new student assessment. And during that, I would then sell them on what my business, my whole business, has been built off, which is player development programs. So in a player development program, and it's changed quite a lot as time's gone on with price points and what they get out of it, it's effectively, uh, we'll just use what I started with, three levels. So it was a basic, an avid, and a tour program. So in the basic program, it was all monthly billing on a recurring basis because as a contractor, you don't have a guaranteed revenue. I saw what every other business was doing and you know what it's like you sign up to something just from a business sense. And six months has gone past before you realize that, oh, my wife's told me to cancel this three times and I still haven't. Now, if you're the beneficiary of that three months, well, so be it. Sure, they're still getting their money's worth and you're still giving them a really good service, but life does get in the way. People move, the kids, everything else. So I knew that these business strategies that I was employing were incredibly important for me to not only reach my um, professional goals, but financial goals as well. And I think that's very key. As much as we love coaching, we still also want to make a good living out of doing that. So I would vet them in a student assessment, and if they lived 100 kilometres away or whatever they were, I wouldn't even broach the topic of them coming into the play development. I would say that I'm here available for your own lessons. I'll always give you free online coaching, and I've always done that with clients that have come to me, free online coaching, whenever you need it, and they saw that as a huge value add. So that would bring the retention from those clients. But let's say anyone lived within, it's turned out to be probably a 60-kilometre radius uh, of Joondalup. I would put them into or I would sell them in the nicest way possible into the play development program. So over a month, you could either do one-hour coaching, two hours of coaching, or four hours of coaching. And within that, you also got what the most important thing I've ever implemented into my business, which was supervised practice. So supervised practice, instead of being your very generic clinic situation where you would have 10 golfers pay a set fee and it might go for four weeks and then it ends, supervised practice is a year-long program. And there will be three hours of supervised practice every week for 52 weeks of the year. So it will be a Monday from 6 to 7 p.m., a Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m., and a Friday from 12 to 1. And what they got in the program, so for simplicity's sakes, so let's say a one-hour lesson is $130. And the basic program was $150. So for $20 extra, they got access to an additional 12 hours of supervised practice. So it's a no brainer. So I'm there, I'm showing them the sheet, but by the time you've got them to that point, you know that they're already going to, to be committed to it because you've addressed their their goals, their fears, their frustrations and everything. And you've, you've pretty much got them to the point where you know that they're gonna be committed through your rapport building. So without any of that, you can't just sell them on this big program of ongoing. And I think that's what a, a, a lot of business people do miss when they're not converting as well as they could. So therefore, they've get into the program. Now, the best thing about this is, sure, it took a while for me to build up. I think in its peak, uh, during certain months, I've had 90 people in this player development coaching program ranging anywhere from one to two to four hours of individual coaching a month, doing 12 hours of supervised practice, and significant recurring guaranteed revenue as a contractor, which is very important. But from their perspective, they're getting so much value for a relative nominal fee but those three hours of supervised practice, that's only of my time. It's not like I'm giving everyone an additional 12 hours of supervised practice. So there'd be open clinics. Now, you've also got to be very good at the logistics. So therefore, I've the biggest day of supervised practice I've ever had was 45 clients in one session. Now, the way that I do that is I just set up so many different rotating stations. But I make it fun. I used to go to F45 training, which for those of you who don't know, it's like a group fitness Uh, rotating station thing. And I effectively made my supervised practice exactly like that. I play cool music. Effectively, there's no technical component to what I do. It's me just setting up beneficial drills that I know that are going to improve the soft skills of playing golf, where they're able to build camaraderie and rapport with the other people. And they just improve through osmosis because they're actually there practicing. Sometimes it's just for the fact that their buddy messages them and says, oh, you want to go down to supervised practice, get some free balls, listen to some music and have a chat. Now, before they know it, they're actually doing really important drills on trajectory control and distance control and start line uh, all in the while of having a really good time. And effectively, I'm just the facilitator of that enjoyment and also the beneficiary of them becoming long-term clients. So you just build this community around what you do. And I've had clients that have been in play development programs for as long as I've been there now. And it's just going to continue and continue and continue. Now, I am getting to a stage now with my business where I want to be open to a lot more opportunities when travel reopens. I'm doing a lot more online staff and media work. So that component of my business is probably going to... Um, be outgrowing as such uh, but it has been so important in building my career to where it is and if I had one piece of advice for any coach that's starting up it would be to look into creating diversified programs
0: where you build a culture around what you do that's not transactional that's really cool karen things certainly are changing in that coaching space and I think the days of selling packages of golf coaching sessions um, are passing us and I think um, guys like yourself are going to be the ones that are pushing the way forward in that space. So I think it's really cool what you're doing there. So what do you do with the client that still wants that one-off golf coaching session, still comes to you, still says, I've got a slice, fix my slice? How do you deal with that particular client? Because as soon as I stopped
1: putting it on my website, there was only really two options. There was either they do the – after they'd done the new student assessment, they could do the individual – lesson or the one-off lesson or the player development programs and if they didn't want to do either well then i didn't have a surface for them and i said well sorry i can't help you there's plenty of other coaches that are willing to do what you want and i think from a business sense if your lowest price point is still higher than the pro down the road's 30 minute lesson well that's all they want and they're not inclined to go down that player development pathway, well then so be it. Now bear in mind when you start, no one knows what you do. So you need to be a very good salesman of your program. Uh, as time goes on, word of mouth spreads, you build up a reputation around what you do and it organically grows through goodwill. Yeah. So I don't really deal with any clients that have that necessity anymore. Um because as with anything in our business you've got 80 20 of headaches versus reward and generally those clients tend to be the ones that are maybe a little bit more challenging and demanding relative to the business upticks that you get from them.
0: Now shifting over to those those type of programs that you've done and obviously done very well do you find or have you found that it cost your customers or cost your clients when you were when you were changing over to that type of coaching
1: no not at all i've i've yeah yeah i've been um i've fallen into i'm never afraid to take a risk ever afraid to risk because you can always default back to something now bear in mind at this point in time uh i didn't have any debt i didn't have a wife and so therefore i was able to take that risk but in the same sense is I knew that if I just did it really well, the cost or the price wouldn't matter. I knew that most of these people have been to other golf coaches. So if I could become a significant point of difference, well, then I would make them feel like they were missing out on something special if they went elsewhere. Now, I wouldn't say that to them, but I think through my actions, the conversations, the rapport that's been built, it becomes apparent the more that you speak to them.
0: Now you have a pretty significant online coaching presence, um, doing some some coaching online. How does that fit in with your, with your programs? How do you blend that online coaching in with the face-to-face stuff that you do with your students?
1: Yeah. So uh, every lesson will have a thorough video review at the end of it. Now, most of my clients either follow me on YouTube, uh, Instagram, or Facebook, and all my content's posted across there as well. So they get a lot of tidbits of information through that. And then effectively, they're allowed to ask me questions at any time, any time. When I do online coaching, it's a little bit different because unless they're doing a monthly program, um, well, then they get full access. But if it's just a one-off lesson, there's obviously a limit to that. Um, If they're an in-person client, however, they can send me as much as they like. And I think once they've had an in-person lesson, even though they value the online stuff, most people at heart, if they have the option to come and see you, will come and see you. So it's just a nice little filly in between. And look, I'll be honest, as with anything, if if I want to do my job as well as I possibly can and they're going to get huge benefit out of me spending one to two minutes of my time just giving them a short video analysis of the drill that they're working on saying, you need to do this better, you need to do that better, then they come back, then we're able to actually maybe move on to the next step with their golf swing or the golf game or the pitching or putting or whatever it is, they're only going to get better. They're only going to tell more people. You're only going to get more reward from doing so. So effectively, I suppose, to summarize that component of it is I make my business as least transactional as possible. Sure, there's a transaction going on, but it's a it's an ongoing experience. It's not just based on the time.
0: That's really cool. I think it's important to stay in touch with your students, keep that relationship going and being able to, to talk with those students Back and forth is certainly a great way uh, to keep them coming back for more. So that's really cool. Yeah,
1: and I I love it. Like One of my favorite parts of my job is making people feel comfortable as quick as I possibly can and be that a new client or a client that I may haven't seen for a month or two months. When you get all these different points of contact, it's kind of like when you haven't seen a best friend in a long time. You see them and even though a period of time may have passed, because you might have seen a Facebook photo or something like that, it feels like you've still been in contact. So it's almost like you're seeing your friend again. And a lot of my clients, I feel that same sort of relationship.
0: Now you have about four hundred things going on at the once with your with your coaching and your businesses. You got about um, twenty five plates spinning. So tell me about your golf trips, for example. Tell me about how they fit in with your with your coaching. So I've
1: tried to. I see golf coaching as a huge opportunity to to live an awesome life, right? And if you can mix business and personal together, well, that's the ultimate dream, right? It doesn't feel like you're working when you do it. I know that in 20 years' time, so I'm 30 now, so when I'm 50, uh, I don't want to be in a position where I have to do as many in-person lessons as in-person lessons as I would have had to previously now technology is going to change so much so I'm sure that will change anyway but over the last three or four years I've tried to do as many different things as possible so I've run multiple golf tours to New Zealand and around Australia with people um, and my clients I've started doing YouTube I've always done Instagram and video content I recently just got a Uh, a job from the Department of Tourism to go to Cocos and Christmas Islands and deliver coaching in a couple of months over there. That wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't done all these other parts of our, our occupation other than just coaching. So I really like the video component of what I get to do, mainly because you've got two types of audiences, right? You've got your local or your global. And if you can reach as many people on a global level, well, you're also going to get the local on the way to doing so. It's just how it is, right? So I feel like for me, it's expanding my business. I, I still very much want to be uh, in control of my time. So I highly doubt I'd ever want to own an academy or run an academy or that sort of thing. I definitely always want to coach, but I, I also really want to pursue other interests within golf coaching Um I really like the the aspects of being able to – we did a presentation to the trainees, so the PGA National School. I like that part of it. I like helping other coaches. I have multiple calls a week with trainees and uh, helping them through their their progress and their coaching development. So I suppose just being as multifaceted as possible. So every day feels like a new day and a new opportunity to make a new connection and do something cool that otherwise maybe I wouldn't have. So broaden out as much as I possibly can.
0: Now, having lots of income streams can't be a bad thing. Um, certainly keeps you busy and having um, mm. pushing the boundaries and pushing yeah, yourself absolutely. as a person, a coach, because is, um, is a really cool thing as well.
1: It, it is. It is. I, I suppose it's a bit of a blessing and somewhat of a little bit of a curse as well because there's a level of uh, being unhappy in a stagnant place. So even though it might be really good and – I absolutely love my coaching business to where it is. I know there's more potential within myself if I keep developing certain skills because I've seen other golf coaches do it. And I want to look back on my career and say that I never missed a chance. I, I, I took everything that I thought I could do and I, I at least gave it a shot. And I think on the way to doing that, you tend to find your default level of, that's my niche I'm going to around there for a while when in maybe 10 years and 20 years. And also um, leading up until the point in time where I have family and the kids and that sort of thing, um, obviously things are going to be tamed down a little bit from where they are, but I've got a great opportunity at the moment to, to try and be as outgoing as I possibly can. So I'm, I'm really going to take that with two hands and take it as far as I can.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Kerry. We certainly appreciate you coming in and having a mm-hmm. chat, but there's five questions. Sure. There used to be four, now it's five this year that I'd like to ask um, all the guests that come on the podcast. So if we can throw the first one at you, what advice do you have for coaches starting out in there? Give as
1: many free lessons as you possibly can. As many free lessons as you possibly can, because the the learning component online is so easy now. Um, I think you can you can pick up the technical knowledge and be proficient if you did a year of hardcore study. But the soft skills, the communication, the rapport building, you only do that through the actual lesson. So you can sit behind your computer and you can know everything you like about every little facet of biomechanics of the golf swing and ball flight and track land and everything like that. But to develop that muscle and those soft skills of communication really is only become, going to become a real strength through repetition And that's through doing golf lessons. And if you're not getting paid for them, well, do them for free. And the best thing about doing something for free, number one, it's not transactional on their behalf. So they're more likely to come back and see you again. So you build some rapport. And before you know it, when you start
0: charging, you've already got a valued client. No, I th- I, that's, I, that's great advice. I think you yeah. certainly improve your coaching by doing it. Um, I think it's very easy to get stuck in the, in the technique of, mm-hmm. of, of golf and not actually applying it. So certainly getting out there oh, and yeah. doing it is, is actually really cool. So we have a few – hopefully there's a few golfers out there tuning into the podcast. So what advice do you have for golfers out there? Learn how
1: to practice properly because this is something that I see when I do supervised practice is I'm sure this has been told multiple times on the podcast already, uh, learn how to practice effectively. And I think sometimes golf professionals are probably better to speak to about that than golf coaches, because I think sometimes a lot of golf coaching is based on the swing and technique elements. And there's not enough of a discussion around effective practice unless you offer that within your, uh, your coaching business. And then also make realistic rehearsals. If there's one thing, every golfer out there should do is make a realistic rehearsal of what they're about to perform because one of the key differences that you see with a professional versus a recreational golfer is their attention to detail on the small things and let's say you've got a 50 meter pitch right and that pitch might be over a little undulation to a tightly cut pin what a pro does is he goes to his bag and he'll take a let's say his gap wedge or a sandwich and he'll put that club in his hands and he'll be relaxed. He'll feel the ground with the sole of the golf club, looking for the, the type of contact he's trying to get from the ground before he goes ahead and executes it. Right? Now you'll generally see the recreational golfer, they'll pull out a club, they'll set up. Not only would their setup be different every time because they don't do the small things really well uh, and consistently. They'll do a little practice swing. It might be twice the length that it needs to be, and they'll dig the leading edge in. Now they've got junk on their face, and then they walk up to the ball, hit it over the back of the green, doesn't spin, and they wonder why. It's like, number one, you rehearse a swing, which is two times too long. You've got matter on the club face, the ball's going to stop. And then from there, you didn't even get an idea of how the club should feel through the ball. So learning how to take realistic rehearsals of what you're about to do is so, so key.
0: I certainly like that 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 practice routine type setup where they're rehearsing the shot a lot for for short games. Not quite sure how it worked for full swings, though. I think the greenkeepers might get a little bit um, peeved with you taking full practice swings um, with with those full shots out there.
1: Yeah. So, in regards to standing up and ripping it at full speed on the tee before you, before you hit a drive, the realistic rehearsal doesn't necessarily have to be the speed component on full swings. It can be more so the contact with the ground, the feeling of the club in your hands. You'll see a lot of pros doing certain maybe little drills or exercises prior to hitting because their golf is fine motor skills played at incredibly high speed, right? So you don't get the option to think about it when you're actually in the second that a golf swing takes. So if you're able to try and feel something before you go in that you know that you want to perform, well, then that would be very helpful for you and very beneficial for you to get a reasonable result relative to what you do. So close enough where you know that what you're about to do would be beneficial. So you can pick one thing, be it speed control, be it contact with the turf, be it the feeling of the club in the hands, be it relaxing tension in your body. There's a multitude
0: of things that you could be realistic about what you're trying to do. And obviously um, having full practice swings and taking chunks of turf out of the fairway might not go down so well either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, correct. Great. Let, let, let let's keep that one there. The contact with the turf, more so for the short shots.
0: So the next question on the list is: Where do you see yourself or coaching? You can answer both or just one in five years' time.
1: Yeah, I think I think the coaching industry as a whole, right, uh, based on the world situation with COVID, I think mean, there's there's a there's a big focus on online coaching at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if that it won't dip. It will probably stagnate. I think people will start to to really get the value back out of in-person coaching. But if you're someone that's able to offer both, I think that's going to be key. The good thing about something like this, if we can derive anything positive out of it, is that it's forced a lot of people who would have otherwise not maybe branched out into those certain areas, certain areas. And as a whole, the industry is only becoming more visible to more golfers because it's become an apparent thing. Like, everything from home has become more popular online shopping courses ebooks everything like that so if you can be a golf coach that's offering not only an in-person component but an online component even if it's just to your clients that you're seeing I think that's an incredibly valuable skill to, to have going forward um, yeah like I said me myself just going forward I want to try and diversify as much as I can and just take hold with many opportunities opportunities as I can as well.
0: And the next question is, is there anything that you would change in your career, anything that you would do differently if you had the chance to go back and take a different path? Is there any change that you would make?
1: Absolutely nothing. I think at the time sometimes you would have that, you would view it through that lens. But if you look at any of the the biggest pain points that you've had in life or the biggest successes, they're all important to craft your personality, your behaviours, Uh, in your motivations to where you are right at this point. And I think if you just continue to go through life expecting the best and accepting everything that happens to you, who you become is who you're meant to be on the way.
0: Completely valid answer. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. I generally ask that question because there's a few things that I would change in my own career. So I'm curious to see if other people would like to change something that they've done. What would you change, Brent? Oh, you're throwing the question back onto me. Um, I would probably go into my tertiary study a, a fraction earlier than what I did. Um, I did post quite late, and I think I would probably yep. look at maybe going to college in the US early on okay. in my career and then try and combine that playing slash um, tertiary education in the same in the same space. So I probably would look to maybe go to college straight out of high school.
1: You You, you just made me think of one thing there. If there's one thing I wish I did do when I was eighteen, I got an offer to go to San Diego State and play golf there. I think Phil Nicholson's brother was the coach, and we had some discussions they were only preliminary but um it got to a stage I think it was a forty percent ride or something like that but but the remaining of that fee to go to college was astronomical and my parents just looked at one looked at it for one 7 they're like number one you're not going to america right now you're not ready for it and uh number two there's no way in hell we can afford that so <laughs> like I, don't get me wrong i would have loved to have done it and it's cool to now be coaching a, a few college players over there but um it would have been a really good experience but also i think i do enjoy the social side of life so maybe it probably would have derailed me from where i've become now so maybe it's for the best
0: as you said, mate, things happen for a reason, so I'm sure you've taken the right path. Now, the final question, and it's a question that we've included this year as the fifth question, what are your sources of learning, your sources of information? Uh, where do you go to learn new things about coaching or about golf? Can you fill us in on those areas? So it's there's so much out there, right, and there's so much noise, and I get a lot of
1: coaches asking me this on Instagram as well, like, what do you teach? Like, where did you get that information from? Now, at the end of the day, it's a it's a, a mix mash of everything that I've learned from all different coaches. I think it's important, very important to have a structure and a bit of a system to what you do on the technical side of the game. Uh, a lot of the education that I've garnered that has been incredibly important for my business has been outside of the golf coaching industry. It may have started with maybe a conversation that I've heard here or there, but then I've researched it outside of it. I, I tend to to go very broad in the educational resources resources that I use. So I'll pick one topic. So for example, when I was doing my website, I just became a nerd on anything about coding a website, and then I'll do anything to do with Instagram, anything from Facebook. So i do a really, really thorough job for a period of time to where I knew I learned enough, and then I would move on to the next thing. And I did the same thing with golf coaching and short game and putting and all the technical aspects as well. So there's so much information out there. I would, I would look for someone that you look up to and ask them their advice on that. Right. So I won't say it now because it's going to be very specific to the individual of what they want, but relative to if someone wants to ask me, oh, where did you learn sales? Or where did you learn marketing or where did you learn golf swing technique? And then I would give them the story of where I got that. So like we were saying before, it's so easy to reach out to these people that you maybe uh, have seen and or have some notoriety and ask them you now just send them a quick message and obviously be very nice about it and graceful gracious for their time, don't be so blunt and rude, Um, but most coaches are very willing to be with their time to say, oh, I use this structure uh, or this little format for my golf coaching, this for my business, and then take it from there. If you just look at golf coaching as a whole, there's so many different places to start. And I remember doing this a couple of times. I bought every online course there was available at the time when I was probably 25 or 26, and I'd go home every night and watch everything about the golf swing. And then the next day I'd rock up on the lesson tee I had so much junk going around in my head and it's all good stuff, but I just didn't know where to start. I didn't have an identity. So even though you might ask someone about their coaching style specifically, you don't want to try and become them. You want to have your own identity because when push comes to shove, that's what you're going to default to is the level of your education and the level of your abilities, not someone else's.
0: Thanks, Carid. So where can people find you if they're hunting you down on socials?
1: Uh, everywhere and anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so I'm on Carid Grey Golf on Facebook and Instagram. Um, I've got a website, kggolf.com. I'm always open and willing to chat to anyone at any time. I love doing it. I really love doing stuff like this, helping others, because I know how important it was through my stage of my career, and it really it motivates me to want to be better as well. Um, and having opportunities such as this to speak to yourself, which I can't be thankful enough to, to know that maybe I'm helping myself from five, six years ago, give them some level of enthusiasm or excitement about what they can achieve in the future, because it's led to me, led for me to, to have a such great, great, great life with where I've got now. So um, it's opportunities like these that that I'm really grateful
0: for awesome mate thanks so much for coming in having a chat with me I'll put some links to all of those uh, social handles in the show notes so people can check you out by clicking on those links thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate you coming and having a chat to me really cool information really cool chat it's great to see you doing so well out there thanks again Carrot. no thank you Brent um, really appreciative for the opportunity thank you so much